first reading comes from Acts, it's chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, and it's on page 772 in the Pew Bibles. starting from verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Our second reading is from Titus um, chapter 3 verse 1. It's on page 844 of your pew Bibles. entitled doing what is good remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities to be obedient to be ready to do whatever is good to slander no one to be peaceable and considerate and to show true humility toward all men at one time we too were foolish disobedient deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures we lived in malice and envy being hated and hating one another But when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Alex and Kate, good evening. Welcome to church. Just a few new faces. My name is Paul. I'm the pastor's here. Uh, We're looking at Titus, uh, sermon number four of a six-part series. Uh, here's a confession. I think I'm getting old. I keep forgetting things. Um, you know, life gets busy. As you get older, life gets busier, and you just forget more and more things. I was um, swimming down the pool, did some laps, got changed, walking home, and you know, mobile phone goes off, and I'm like, uh, where are you? I'm like, oh, I've just been for a swim. Oh, we've, uh, we've cooked dinner for you. You're supposed to be here. Oh, yeah, I forgot that. I would never forget that like five years ago. What's happening? I'm just losing my memory. I remember um, I was at Bible college. Uh, the worst thing I think I forgot was um, I forgot my first year Greek exam. I, I turned up on a Tuesday afternoon, but actually it was on Tuesday morning, so I'd missed it already. I remember missing a plane from New York to Seattle. I only missed it because I was uh, 24 hours late. just got the wrong date. I chatted to someone this week who, um, if you're married, listen carefully, this man forgot his wife's birthday. Not a good thing to do. What's the worst thing that you've forgotten? 
another question. What, what, what do you forget? So as you get older and as life get, gets busier, it's easy to forget things, isn't it? And I think in the Christian life, the longer you've been a Christian, the more time you spend in church, the more stuff that you do, it's easy to forget things. And in this passage tonight, Paul is saying to Titus and to the church in Crete, there are certain things about being church that you must never forget. There are certain things about being God's people who have been bought by the blood of Jesus that you must never, ever forget. Don't grow old and forget them. Don't get too busy and forget them. I'm just going to look at two very simple things tonight. Don't forget the gospel. Don't forget the gospel. As you stuff your life doing stuff, please never forget what Jesus has done for you. But then don't forget to do good. The other two things that go hand in hand, don't forget the gospel and don't forget to do good. Because if you love Jesus, you'll be doing good deeds. If you have a real relationship with Christ, you will do good things. If you've been gripped by the gospel of grace, that will show itself in the good deeds that you do in your life. Two very simple things. Don't forget the gospel. Don't forget to do good. We focused a lot on the gospel over the last few weeks, the gospel of grace. We'll look at it again tonight because it is so foundational. But friends, the Christian life is not, is, is not just about what you believe. Okay? But your belief must impact your behavior. What, what you claim to believe about God must show itself in the way that you live. He's saying your grace, your, your grip of grace will show itself in the good things that you do in life. And that's the big theme of this letter. We've skimmed over it. The theme is this, doing good. Doing good. Uh, just let's walk through the letter with me. Chapter 1, verse 16. These false teachers claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Look down to chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, Jesus Christ has appeared... And he's given himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. Now, what are we called to do? We are eager, we are zealous, we are passionate to do what is good. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready to do whatever is good. Chapter 3, verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying, I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. 3 verse 14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. Have you got it? He's not particularly subtle, is he? He just keeps ramming it home. You know, If you are the church, if you're God's people, you should be known as people who... Do good. Who are do gooders? Uh, the church is not just full of nice people. We're not full of people who, who do good things because we want to make a name for ourselves. Uh, the church is supposed to be full of people who are so in love with Jesus that we're eager, that we long to, to give our time and our energy and our money and our talents to do good things. Yeah, it's costly. It's tiring. It's sacrificial. 
It's not about us. We don't do these good things because we want to be important. It's not about us. We don't want to be paid for it. But we're so in love with our Savior that we just want to honor him and live the life that he calls us to. And whenever we see people in need, we just want to to help. That's the mark of the Christian. You don't do those things to earn your salvation. It's all about grace. But if you've been gripped by grace, then you'll do good. I went through the, uh, the church roll call this week and just went through what people do at church and outside of church. And it's amazing what people do in this church. You might, know, you might not know a lot of these things. Uh, people go and do food van on a Thursday night to feed the homeless. Uh, people involved in prison ministries and hospital ministries, hospital radio. Uh, people are out at street level in Surrey Hills on a Friday night. Uh, there are people... Uh, who have set up a charity for aid orphans. Uh, there are people who've gone to Cambodia to build houses with habitat. But it's not just the glamorous things, you know. There are people in this church who cook meals for people, who go shopping for the sick, uh, people who come and sharpen pencils in the pews, people who clean toilets, and just the, the people who very quietly and very sacrificially get on with doing good things. Thinking, how can I help people? What can I do? Let me ask you, is that how people describe you? A person who loves Jesus and so you do good things. Do you want to be known as a do-gooder? Two things tonight. Don't forget the gospel. Don't forget to do good. Firstly, don't forget the gospel. We've got to start with this. Let me say right at the beginning, I'm begging you, please Never tire of hearing the gospel. Please don't sit there thinking, oh, not again, the gospel of grace. It's the most beautiful news in the whole world. And if I just focused on good works, if I just preached a sermon on good deeds tonight, we'd be like every other religion. I could tell you what to do, I could give you a list of things that you could do, and you'd leave here feeling good about yourself. Or you'd leave here feeling a bit sort of weighed down and burdened by the things that you, that you, you must do. And soon and very soon, if it's just about your good deeds, you'll start to think that in some small way, God will be very pleased with you and you've earned your salvation. But the Bible is very clear. We don't do good to be saved. But if we are saved, we do good. It's there in chapter 3. For chapter 3, verse 3. There's a missing word. The word is for. For, because at one time, we too were foolish disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of the good and righteous good deeds we'd done, but because of his mercy. That is the gospel, my friends. So clear, so simple. It's a before and after. It's like the magazine shots. You know, this is before, this is after. And if, if the gospel has changed you, you'll have a before picture and you'll have an after picture. And what was your before picture like? Let me warn you, this should have a, an R rating. It's pretty ugly. Verse 3, before you were saved, we too were foolish. Uh, we made deliberate choices against God. We had no understanding. You, know, you might have to be the, the most intelligent person with three degrees and a high IQ, but without God, you're a fool. 
That's what the Bible says. It's just worldly wisdom. Uh, you were disobedient. Life was about you and your choices and what you wanted to do. You were deceived. You were led astray by the world around you that promised so much. You were led astray by the prince of the world, that's Satan. And verse tells you that you were a slave. You were addicted by all kinds of passions and pleasures. You know, the things of this world, <clears throat> money, success, popularity, all the things that, that promise you so much because they give you that, that temporary buzz, that temporary feeling of satisfaction, but they, it never lasts. And yet we're hooked on them. And you get the picture? We live by our standards and we just drift through life living for me and living for today, but it gets much more ugly. Verse 3. I reckon this next sentence described me 20 years ago. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. We we were malicious. If someone offended me, I, I think, how can I get them back? If someone had something that I really wanted, I would think, how can I get that? Malicious and envy and you know, not like a, a five-year-old. You can tell when they're, they're jealous or envious. They just stomp their feet and they cry and say, I want it. But no, we were just very adult-like. We just manipulate and we make snide comments and we just uh, put on the fake smile and pretend that we like someone. We don't really like them. We just want what they've got. Right? That's the life without Christ. And verse 3 tells me that that's what we were like. At one time, we too, yeah, even Paul the Apostle, even Titus, even Timothy, even the most respectable, nicest person you know was like this. Because deep down inside each one of us, my friends, there's this, it's like we've got a switch inside each one of us, and that switch has got a symbol on saying, me. And we just flick on the switch, and life evolves around me and my choices and what pleases me and what I want. And according to the Bible, we are all like it. People often say to me, yeah, but there's so many nice people out there. What about all these nice, kind, generous people who are generally good? Yeah, you know, there are some lovely people out there. In God's grace, there are some beautiful people out there in the world who don't know Christ. And in God's grace, they are extraordinarily generous. And they're nicer than a lot of Christians I know. But they're not perfect. And they're not blameless. And they're not spotless. And every single one of us needs rescuing. And we need grace. It's like we're in this pit. And we can't crawl out of it by ourselves. And we're utterly hopeless and utterly helpless. But look at that verse again. Spot the tense. At one time we too, we were foolish. Past tense. He's saying, before the moment Christ entered your life, this is what you were like. Now here's the important bit. Don't forget this. God saved you. Verse 5, he saved us. Verse 5 again, he saved us. See, your salvation is not about you, it's about God. People often say, uh, when were you saved? It's a wrong question to ask. The question is, when did God save you? Because your salvation was initiated by God and was completed by God. It was God reaching out to you and rescuing you and saved you. That's what this passage is all about. It's a beautiful, beautiful summary of the gospel. Because you get a glimpse into the heart of God. And God's heart is different to my heart and your heart. We're about envy and malice and foolishness. But God's heart is about 
It's about kindness and, and love and mercy and grace. It's about God saving us. Look at it with me again. Verse 4, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things, the good things we've done, but because of his mercy. I want to ask you a few questions. When, how, what, who, why? When did God save you? What was the timing? Verse 4, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. Another epiphany. Now, now when did God's love and God's kindness appear? Tell me, when did God's love and God's kindness appear? In creation? When did God's love and God's kindness appear? 2,000 years ago when, when grace stepped into the world in the person of Christ. That's when it appeared. But, but more than that, you know, he's saying, when did God's love and kindness appear in your life? Because every individual person has a moment when the love and kindness of God appeared in their life. And Jesus revealed himself as, as their personal saviour. There's a before moment, and then the love and kindness of God appeared in your life. And he saved you, he changed you. So when was that? For you, sitting here tonight, when was that? When did the love and kindness of God, your saviour, appear to you? Has he appeared to you? Now for me, it was sometime around May 1990. When did the love and kindness of God appear to you? How did God save you? What are the grounds? Look at verse 5 again. It's humbling. He saved us not because of the righteous things that we'd done. Nothing to do with you and your good works. So you could give all your money to the poor. You could work tirelessly for charity. You could be the nicest, kindest, friendliest, most selfless person in the world. That's not how you're saved. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his, his mercy. What a beautiful word that is, mercy. Because of God's mercy, because of God's, God, God not giving you what you deserve. That's what mercy means. Uh, God sees you and sees that you are foolish and disobedient and deceived and he doesn't give you what you deserve. He gives you mercy. There's a story of a, um, a, a rich lady who was having her portrait painted Unfortunately, this lady was quite ugly. <laughs> and uh, she's sitting there having a portrait painted, and she says to the artist, uh, Sir, uh, make sure you do me justice. And the painter says quite cheekily, uh, Madam, it's not justice you need, but mercy. It's quite offensive, but actually, that's you, and that's me. We're ugly. Because of our sin, because of our disobedience, because of our deception, because of our pride, we're ugly. Please don't say to God, make sure you do me justice. Say to God, make sure you give me mercy. Because that's what you need, that's what I need. What does it mean to be saved? Look at verse 7. You've been justified by his grace. You've been declared righteous. You have that stamp saying, not guilty. But it's more than that, friends. Your salvation is not just a legal transaction. It's a living relationship. It's a radical change. So back to verse 5. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. 
whom he poured out generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. There's two ways you could read that verse. You could read it as he saved us through the, the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. Two separate events, washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So there's a moment in time where, where God washed you and you were born again. And there's another moment later on where God renewed you by his Holy Spirit. And that's how some churches teach that verse. It's not what the verse says. Literally, the verse says, uh, God saved you through the washing by the Holy Spirit that brings re- rebirth and renewal. The washing of rebirth and renewal, one event, rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And you see the difference? At the moment you hear the gospel, the moment the lights go on, you're washed and you're cleansed and you're renewed and you're born again because you've got the Spirit. I can pinpoint that to a time in May 1990 where it was so clear that something had happened. The lights had gone on. (laughs) Suddenly the Bible was alive to me. And it was kind of like I had this prodding every day going, Paul, that's got to change. Paul, you've got to start doing this. You've got to stop doing this. I'm going... Why? And then the Bible would come alive and go, oh, that's right, because I'm now a Christian and I follow Jesus. And I had this assurance and this peace and this, this deep joy because I'd been reborn and I'd been renewed. And that was the work of the Spirit, whom God had poured out generously on me. Has he done that for you? Who's involved in your salvation? It's such a Trinitarian verse, isn't it? Verse 5. God saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom God poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ. They're all there. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, transforming you, saving you, and cleansing you. Why? Why has God saved you? Verse 8, verse 7, so that you might become heirs. You might have the hope of eternal life and be part of God's heavenly family. Now, friends, when you hear that explanation, when you hear that God has saved you, he's given you new birth, He's renewed you. He's given his spirit to you. He's poured out it generously. You're an heir. You're a co-heir with Christ. What are you thinking? Ho-hum. Heard it before. I hope you're sitting there thinking, wow, what a God we've got. What a gospel we've got. It is so simple and yet so complex. I'm urging you to, to know the gospel, to understand the gospel, to, to delve deeper into this gospel. To, you, be, you should be sitting there thinking, what does it mean to be reborn and renewed? What does it mean to be justified by his grace? Uh, how has God's kindness been shown to me? Uh, what an amazing love that he would love me, this wretched sinner. I, I want to urge you to, to think the gospel, to be gripped by the gospel, to be shaped by the gospel, to, to live the gospel. It defines you, it changes you. And one of the greatest privileges as a pastor is just to see the gospel at work in people's lives. To see men and women who are just being changed slowly and miraculously by the Spirit at work in their lives. I can think of a guy, even this year, his life has been radically changed because he's met Jesus. Is that you? Is it the gospel of grace that shapes this church? Is it the gospel of grace that shapes your life? See... We don't need more sermons on doing good. We don't need more sermons on living generously. 
There's a vision statement on living generously. What we need is the gospel of grace just to grip you so much that you just love Jesus. And then you'll do good. Lots of churches out there preach about doing good. But it's got to be founded in the gospel. Because you love Jesus, you want to do good. But one mark is that you're being, that you're being gripped by grace is that you do good. You're full of good deeds. Not a duty, but a delight. It's kind of like, because God has been gracious to me, I just want to be gracious to other people. And that's my big point for tonight. Don't forget to do good. If you're a believer, look at verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying. I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God, you're not trusting in your own good works or your own accomplishments, but you're trusting in God and his goodness and his kindness and his love. If that's you, then you may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Please meditate on that verse. Be careful to devote yourselves to doing what is good. Be careful to devote yourselves to doing what is good. Literally it says that you give attention to, that you grab every opportunity to, that you live life on the lookout for every opportunity to do good. I don't know whether they tried to uh, cross four lanes of traffic on a freeway. There's that awful junction where you're going from, from North Sydney across to Mossman. It's hideous. You've got to cross four lanes in about 200 yards. And you're in your car, you've got people in the back of your car, and you're driving along, and you've got all this traffic coming by, and you're going, come on, give me a spot, give me a spot, give me a spot. And people behind you are saying, now, now. And you're thinking, oh, shut up. Come on, get me across, get across. And then you see that spot, and you grab that spot, and you zoom across because you found the spot, and you've grabbed it, and you've taken it. That is what that verb, to be careful to devote yourselves, really means. That you're living your life as though you're always looking for the opportunity and you're spotting it and you're grabbing it. You're thinking, yes, I can do good. Yes, I can do a good thing. Yes, I can honor Jesus by doing good. You're living life with this alert going, wow, how can I do good in this world? Is that you? That you're careful to devote yourself to doing what is good? Well, people say, yeah, he's a do-gooder. Yeah, she's a do-gooder. I can see that she loves Jesus because she's always doing good. That's the practical theme of Titus. Be a do-gooder. But it's not just Titus, it's the whole Bible. Remember Ephesians 2, the other before and after passage? Famous passage in Ephesians 2, but we often miss the last verse. Ephesians 2, verse 10. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Now, if you're a Christian, that's what the Christian life is about. You love Jesus, so you do good. We're living in the world. We're not of the world. We know the culture, but we don't conform to the culture. But you're do-gooders. You're anxious. You're eager. You're devoted. You're careful. You grab every opportunity to, to do some good works. Friends, you should want to be a Dorcas. It's a dreadful name, Dorcas. But it's a great thing for your gravestone. Dorcas, she was always doing good and helping the poor. 
Wouldn't you love that to be on your gravestone? Love Jesus. He says he's always doing good and helping the poor. I want to be a guy called Thomas Bernardo. He loved Jesus. And so in the 1800s, he set up a Bernardo's Christian Homes for boys. He loved Jesus, so he did good. I want to be a, a Chad Vower, who's a minister in the UK. Back in the 50s, he just uh, buried another 14-year-old girl who committed suicide. And he loved Jesus so much, he thought, I've got to do something here. And so he set up a phone line, and he called it the Samaritans. He loved Jesus, so he did good. A guy called Tony Miller, who loved Jesus, so he set up a company called Dads in Distress uh, to teach dads how to love their kids and how to love Jesus and love their kids more. I'd long to be someone like Catherine Hamlin. She loves Jesus. And so 50 years ago, she got on a plane with her husband, Reg, and went to Africa, to Ethiopia, and set up a hospital to do good for the women there because she loved Jesus. I'd love to be Alyssa Yule, intelligent woman, beautiful woman of God, who's given up her life in Sydney to go and work in Nepal, working with lepers every day because she loves Jesus and she's doing good. Countless and countless of great Christian men and women who have been so gripped by the gospel of grace, they just say, how can I do good in this world? How can my life make a difference for Jesus in this world? Because that's what the church was known for. In the first century, the church was known as a do-gooders. Not to help just church people. Not this little club that just helped the church, but it helped the world. It helped other people. It was the Christians who looked out for the orphans and the widows and the sick and the homeless and the depressed and the, the refugees and the mentally ill. It was the Christians who set up the hospitals and the hospices and the hostels and the schools. It was the Christians who, who fought against slavery and child labor. It was the Christians who shared their possessions and gave money and loved the loveless because they loved Jesus. That was 2,000 years ago. How's the church doing today? How are you doing today? Are we do-gooders? I'm not talking about the, the grand act where we want acclamation and applause and a photo in the paper. I'm talking about the humble, quiet, sacrificial, grace-driven deeds that you just do because you love Jesus. Cooking a meal, giving to the poor, sponsoring a child, helping someone move, offering legal aid. Every day just doing good. We focus on two areas because that's where the passage goes. It says do good in your attitude towards leaders, in your attitude towards authority. Make sure you do good there. Verse 1, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready to do whatever is good. When it comes to those who God has placed over you, that your governments and your rulers, are you ready to do what is good? Submit to them? Be obedient to them. Oh, not a blind obedience. God has given us brains and consciences so we never disobey God. But God has placed people over us and we as a church should be shining examples of people who are loyal members of society eager to do what is good. We have it easy here in Australia. We have good governments. We're not persecuted. We're not forced underground. We're not marginalized. And sure, you might disagree with certain policies, 
But if it's not against Scripture, we obey. If you don't like what it says, you still submit. If it makes you inconvenient, you still submit. Every day you make decisions. Are you going to do good in the way you relate to authorities? I was thinking back to the last few years, about almost, almost three years ago now. Got a letter through the post. Open the letter. It's one of those dreadful speeding fines from those fixed speeding cameras. And I've been going 56k an hour in a, in a 50k zone down in Barry. And my immediate reaction was, that is ridiculous. It's 56k in a 50k zone. So what did I do? I wrote a complaint letter. That's the wrong thing to do, my friends. That's the rules. There are governments. The good thing, the right thing to do is to obey. At the moment, we're applying for DA for a building project with North Sydney Council. They keep knocking us back. What's the right thing to do? Sure, we ask questions and we question why decisions are made, but we do that with integrity and with graciousness and with honesty. We're not like the world. This week is tax time, isn't it? It's due next week. Are you going to sit with your tax accountant and to work out every loophole in the law so you can get the most tax back? And when you get that tax back, are you going to say, wow, how can I use this to do good? Do good in relation to authorities. Do good in relation to all people. Verse 2, slander no one. Be peaceable and considerate and show true humility towards all men. Slander nobody, even the person who hurt you and disappointed you. You're not contentious, but you're peaceable. You're considerate, you're gentle, and you show true humility, genuine humility, uh, the kind of humility that was taught and embodied by Jesus Christ towards the people you like? No, towards all people. Because in the church, your relationship should be marked by selfless words and this beautiful, other person-centered, do-good attitude. It is so sad where Christians in the church slander, attack, abuse, hold grudges, retaliate. It's not about your pride. It's not about you being proved to be right. If you love Jesus, do good in the way you relate to people. Dorcas is always known for doing good. Titus says, Titus says, be careful to devote yourselves to doing good. Is that you? Let's go through your week. Are you going to do good at work? You have to work tomorrow and think, Lord, how can I do good today? Maybe sit with a colleague and help them with a process that they don't understand. Maybe have lunch with a colleague and listen to their problems. Maybe off to stay late at work to help the secretary with some extra work. Or maybe you sit at your desk and think, how can I use these skills that God has given me? I could help someone fill out their tax form. I could teach a child in need. I could set up a, a charity. I could sit on a board for strategic planning. I could use the gifts God has given me. How can you use your work environment to do good? What about church? There are lots of opportunities here to do good. Come to community lunch. Just sit with someone and listen to them and talk to them. Cook a meal for the woman who's just had a baby. Shop for those who are infirm. 
Go and visit someone who is depressed or lonely. Invite somebody into your house for dinner, not just your friends, but people you don't know. Maybe if you don't even like, invite them around for dinner. Meet one-to-one and read the Bible with somebody. Come and do some photocopying. Sharpen the pencils in the pews. There's all these ways that you can just get involved. Come and help out with kids on a Tuesday morning at Crash or at Kids Church or Explorers Club. One connect group this year uh, offered for their help with the Jesus Club, which is a club for the uh, physically and mentally disabled kids. Run a Simply Christianity course. How are you going to do good at church? What about the community? We live in a community called Kiribati. Go, go down to the Kiribati Neighborhood Center. Think, how can I do good here? What about globally? You know, we live in an age where you could go home tonight. You could go home tonight and you could do good in this world. You could do something tonight that would make a difference to somebody's life on the other side of the world. You could give to the earthquake appeal. You could, you could give to the voice of the martyr. You could pray for, for Miriam and for Ruth. You could press a button and you could donate some money to a child in Africa or in Asia. You could phone or Skype Alyssa Yule. What could you do globally to help and do good tonight? Your work, your church, your community, the world. Have you got it? Grace compels you to do good. If the gospel's grabbed hold of you, you'll do good. So why don't you? Why don't you do good? Oh, somebody else will do it. No. You do it. Oh, I'm busy. I'm really busy. Yeah, we are busy. We're all busy. Especially here in Alone, I'm sure we all lead very busy lives. But you know, there are 168 hours in a week. Say if you slept for 50, 60 hours a week. Say if you worked for 80 hours a week. Say if you were at church for 10 hours a week or read the Bible for 5 hours a week and spent 20 hours a week with your family and friends, you've still got 10 to 15 hours of the week to do good. But we've created this thing called leisure time. And my challenge is use your leisure time to do good. Oh, but I'm so tired. Let's go to heaven tired. <laughs> Let's go to heaven so tired of doing good things. Oh, but I'm really struggling spiritually. Now that's the reason you don't do good. If you're struggling spiritually, if you're struggling in your relationship with God, please don't do good things. Sort out your relationship with Jesus. Fall in love with Jesus again. And then you'll do good. I don't know, maybe you want to go home tonight. Sit down, pray. Think about what you can do to devote yourselves to doing good. Because it changes lives, it changes people. That's what the verse says, verse 8. These things are excellent, they're beautiful, they're honorable, they're precious, and they are profitable for everyone. Not just the church, but for the world. Because when people see your good deeds, you make the gospel attractive. When people see your good deeds, they praise your heavenly Father. Friends, don't forget the gospel. Don't forget to do good. I'll leave you tonight with the story of uh, William Wilberforce. There's a man 
who loved Jesus and who did good. Year after year after year, he campaigned against slavery. He campaigned against slavery and he won. Do you, know what, what, do you know what one of his first comments was after he'd won? He apparently turned to a Christian man who was sitting nearby and he said these words. He said, what next? What can we do next? That's the kind of attitude. Not, oh, I've done some good so I have a holiday. I've achieved something so I'll just rest for a while. What next? What can we do next, God? Uh, God, I'm here. I'm your servant I love you, you've saved me, I love you so much. What can I do next for you, God? What good works can I do for you, God, because you have saved me and I love you. I just want to be known as a person who's devoted to doing good. Is that you? Do you want on your gravestone? He loved Jesus. He was gripped by the gospel. And he was always doing good. That's what I pray for. And I'll pray that for you as well. Let me pray. Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you for the precious blood of Jesus that was shed for us. Thank you for your mercy and your kindness and your love and your grace. Our Lord, help us to be so overwhelmed by your love, so amazed at your grace that we would be eager, ready, careful and devoted doing what is good. I ask that for Jesus' sake.